Welcome to Ambassador Audio, the media outreach ministry of Taylor Ministries. Our passion is to see your life elevated to reach your godly potential through the Word of God. We believe you'll find life-changing truths as you hear today's sermon, because no Word of God is void of power. Now, let us join a live service already in progress. If you would, find in your Bibles 1 Samuel chapter 18. 1 Samuel chapter 18. I'm going to preach this morning uh, the conclusion of the blood covenant. Uh, and I have entitled this message, No More Crumbs. I don't know about you, but that, just, that title, just you know, when the Lord gave me that, it just, just, just rings with abundance. Glory to God. <laughs> it just rings with, it's, I'm tired of sitting in the back of the bus. I'm not giving my seat up anymore. I'm going to sit in the front of the bus. Hallelujah. No more going to the back of the line for me. Hallelujah. No more going to the end and waiting for the leftovers. No more crumbs. No more leftovers. We're going to, we're going to have the abundance that God intended us to have. Amen. God is interested in you prospering. He's interested, not only just mean money, but He's interested in you and prospering in your mental health, in your physical health. He wants you well. He wants you to prosper in your, in your pursuit of your, de- of the God plan for your life, the God assignment for you. He wants you to prosper in every way. Prosperity is not just about having more money. That's about having more peace, having more love. It's about having the total, the whole realm of your life being prosperous and having the desire that you want. That means having the mate that you want. You might have a, you may not have a mate, so you can just stand and believe God that you, that you're gonna have a mate. But then again, if you've got a mate, you've got the mate that God wants you, and so you gotta believe God for that mate to be the mate that God called you to have. <laughs> hey man, sometimes you gotta see through the eyes of faith. Speak to the mountain. Hallelujah. We're not talking about him. <laughs> Just speak to the mountain. <laughs> Hallelujah. But sometimes you have to look through the eyes of it. But God wants us to prosper in every area of our life. Amen. He wants us. Now, he wants us to prosper not so that we can just be at ease in Zion. He wants us to prosper so that we can be about doing his business. I don't know about maybe God's called you to corporate America and to work alongside someone and be a witness to them that and and it, the best witness that you could be is that you come in full of the joy of the Lord, full of the peace of God, full of the love of God that it seems like when things try and come against you they just seem to bounce off you and people are start noticing that and God sets you as a light in the middle of that darkness so that they can see the Bible being walked out in front of them. I don't know about you, but that's exciting to me. Because God may call God may call you to the ministry. God may call you to preach. God help you if he does. But nonetheless, yes, he will. But at the same time, he's going to have to help you if you work in the marketplace. He's going to have to help you if you work in the corporate America. Because, you know, some of you, you may be working in a place where, oh, you're the only Christian. You're, that's great. Man, you have got, you, God has, has uh, trusted you to sit down in the middle of a bunch of ungodly, heathen people to just be the light that shines. Don't, I've had people say, Pastor, pray, please pray for me. I'm the only Christian where I work. I said, I'm not going to pray for you for you. I'm praying for them. (laughs) 
That they will see what you have. Don't go in there with all downcast uh, spirits. Don't go down there with an a- attitude like, well, they're going to talk again on Monday morning about their parties and about all this stuff, and it's just vexing my soul. Why don't you tell them about the wonderful party you had on Sunday? Why don't you tell them about the joy of the Lord that you found over the weekend, that as you were spending time with your family, that the peace of God has flooded your life? I'm telling you what, they don't have that. Amen. The peace of God. So we're talking about no more crumbs this morning. And we've been studying about the blood covenants and about what covenants are. And we found out because of blood covenants, there are some things that have happened to us. And we are involved in that the devil has tried to keep it quiet. He's tried to attack this subject. He's tried to keep the church away from the blood covenant because he knows that the moment that people begin to understand the blood covenant, that life will change for them in an instance. Now, see, if you were here all over the weekend, you'd know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but what I'm saying is we're going, to share, we're going to share just a little bit of that so that we can help you understand why we're talking about no more crumbs. Now, if you will, you should have found, even the slowest person should have found 1 Samuel chapter 18. You had time enough to read the table of contents to get there if you needed that. But 1 Samuel chapter 18, if you have a hard time finding 1 Samuel 18, it's right after 1 Samuel 17. So I just want to help you there. Verse number 1. Now, when he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. So Saul took him that day and would not let him go home to his father's house anymore. Now, this is our text. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And then verse 4, And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David, and with his armor, even to his sword and to his bow and to his belt. Listen real carefully. A covenant, there, were, there are in the Bible, there are many covenants, but there are reasons, there are about three primary reasons why, you are, why people cut covenants. There are three primary reasons why people cut covenants. Number one was for protection and safety. You remember this? It was for protection and safety. One tribe would, uh, 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 would um, court or, uh, you know, enter into another tribe and say, you know, we would like to cut a covenant with you because we don't want to be at war with one another. We want to have peace with one another. And so if, our en- if, if an enemy comes in uh, trying to destroy either one of us, we want to be able to rely upon your strength and upon you. And so what they would do is they would cut a covenant simply for protection or safety. The second reason that they would uh, that they would have uh, that they would cut covenant is for trade. That means as if one was more of a military type of uh, community or a culture, and, and they had strong soldiers, and then yet over here there was more of an agricultural uh, society, or maybe these people they uh, grew grain, and over here they raised cattle. Well, they would make a covenant that where they would begin to make trades between each other rather than just being at odds with one another and only trying to support each other on what they could what they could uh, come up with. All right. Then the third reason why they that people would uh, come to uh, come to cut a covenant was the simple fact of they loved one another. And this is the story of Jonathan and, and, and David. Now, uh, mo- a lot of preachers stay away from this relationship because, because of the homophobia. 
uh, they, because one place in the Bible, the Bible says that, that Jonathan and David's love for one another exceeded the love for a woman. But it doesn't mean that they were homosexuals. We don't understand that what a strong friendship is anymore. Because we live in a society where we, where we have such an entourage and such a, a, a cramming down our conservative throat of this alternate lifestyle that we have become somewhat homophobic in the sense that two men cannot share a strong bond of friendship without there being something funny or perverted about it. But God is interested in people coming into agreement because it is in the power of agreement that there is a stronger force. One will put a thousand to fly, two will put ten thousand to fly. And you get two men serving God with all of their heart in covenant agreement with one another and they're unstoppable. Hallelujah. I mean, so long the gospel has been carried upon the weights, has been, the weight of the gospel has been carried on the shoulders of women that have said, you know, they come to church and then they leave, they leave husbands at home and, and they're afraid, and there's nothing wrong with that, however. But when a man stands up and says, as for me and my house, we're gonna serve the Lord, there's something about a man that says, I'm in covenant with God, I'm in covenant with my fellow man, and there's nothing that we can't do. There's a force about that that causes literally the earth to shake and the heavens to move. I don't know about you, but there is something about this relationship that we must understand. We cannot be afraid of people any longer. I've said it and I've said it and I've said it. The more technologically heavy we become in this culture, the more suspicious we become of one another. The more we digress from, from Christian fundamentals in our government and in our society, the more and more we fear one another. Ladies and gentlemen, God is interested in bringing people together along in the covenant of His love, but not trying to isolate. The devil's job is to try to isolate people, try to keep them on islands. That's where people get weird. You ever met somebody that spent too much time alone? Yeah, I said it. (laughs) People spending too much time in front of a computer can turn out weird. (laughs) You know them. I know them. You know, and I, you know, I work on computers all the time. I work, but I try not to spend too much time alone there because I don't want to wind up socially handicapped. (laughs) Anybody know what I'm talking? We're talking about the geeks. All right. But at the same time, listen real carefully, it is God's interest to bring relationships together. God's number one interest in the plan of redemption was to get you back in relationship with Him. The devil had isolated us from Him. God was interested in getting us back. And so here is this covenant of love that we see here between Jonathan and David. Because they loved each other as their own soul, there was a strong bond of friendship between the two of them. Now, what we did is over this weekend, we talked about the tokens of covenant. So I want to go through those real quickly of the tokens of covenant. So if you want to take some notes, you want to write these down real quickly. There were tokens of the covenant or elements of the covenant that would make a covenant a covenant. All covenants had some form of these things or some combination of these things involved in them. Number one is the exchange of coats or robes, and that was the identity. You know, people can tell you kind of by the way you dress. We can identify people. You know, you can identify yuppies by how they dress. 
You can, drive, you can identify the preppies how they dress. You can identify a blue-collar worker how he dress. You can sure tell a, a, a Pentecostal preacher about how he dresses. He got the slick back hair. He got the, you know, he's got the gut, you know, and he, most of the time. And, uh, and he's got a gruff voice because he's preached his voice out. I mean, you could tell people by their, by, the, and that's the identity. You could tell people by the way they dress. So the exchange of coats was basically saying, here is my identity. I'm giving it to you. I'm exchanging. Remember, Joseph had the coat of many colors. He was identified by his, by his dress. And so here is the exchanging of coats. Number two is the taking off of the belt. Now, the belt today holds up your pants or is just an accessory for ladies. But the the belt in those days was not for the holding up of pants. It was the carrying of weapons. And so you'd put your sword on your on your belt or your dagger or you, you would even put your bow at times on your belt. And so what they would do is that when they took off their belt and they would exchange their belt, this is what they're saying. They're saying, I'm trading my, I'm giving you my defense, my arm, everything that I protect myself with, I'm going to, now I'm giving you. You protect me and now I'm protecting you. Together we are protecting one another. And that's what he said. I'm lending you my strength. I'm lending you my protection. All right. Number three is they would then cut the covenant and that would be an incision in the hand or in the wrist. And what they would do is then they, after they would cut that, uh, cut that covenant in the hand or in the wrist, what they would do is then they would take, in, the, in our modern day handshake comes from this, is that they would then take the uh, hand and then they would allow the blood that was flowing between them it, to drain down into a, a, a cup of wine or beer. And what they would do then is then they would, they, they're, what they're signifying is my blood and your blood are now flowing together and now we are of one blood. We are are blood brothers now. Does this make sense? How many did that as a kid? I did it as a kid. And, uh, and, and so we, that's what the cutting of the covenant was. There was a scar that would be left on that hand or on the arm or somewhere on the body. If, you watched, if you've uh, read much after National Geographic, you see these indigenous people in foreign lands that they have these markings on their face or scars in their, in their arms or they're on their body. What they're doing is they cut covenant there. And those are marks not of, uh, of dishonor or a war. There are marks of honor because... That means that they're not alone. You attack them, you're not just going to attack them. They've got other people that they're in covenant with that will defend them. Amen. So the fourth thing is, then they would then raise their right arm and mix the blood and drink the blood from that in that wine. They'd raise their right arm and then they would swear. This is where we get the oath taking. They would raise their hand to God and they would begin taking the oath and they would swear allegiance to one another and then they would and and, and they would swear the oath and that's what a covenant is. It is a solemn oath between two parties. All right, the next one. They would then exchange names. They would take the Joe would be and Fred. If they came into covenant, Joe would take Fred's name and Fred would take Joe's name. And now they're not known as Fred Joe and Joe Fred. In other words, like the way we do in our uh, in our wedding ceremonies, there's the lady usually takes the man's name. In, in this culture, the lady usually takes the man's name. But most of the time, you would see a hyphenated name. Or if you if you listen to some of the African names, the reason that they sound so funny is that because there are covenants involved there. 
Matter of fact, in the Spanish culture even, you'll, you'll, you'll hear them, their, their formal name is one name, but then they have another name that rattles off all these other last names. Why? Because of all the covenants that have been made. Does this make sense? Everybody still here? All right. The next one is they would then make a scar. In that cutting of the covenant, they would make a scar. And what they would do is they would take ashes, and later on they used gunpowder, but they'd take ashes and that soot, and they would mix it into that scar so that they would blacken that scar and make that scar a prominent mark so that everyone could see it. Now, in the marriage covenant, we covered this, is that now we wear a ring in the place of where they used to make a scar. They used to actually take the skin and, and actually take the skin off of that ring because they believed of the, the vein and the nerve that ran from that third finger on the left hand all the way to the heart. It was connected to the heart. And so it was a blood covenant. And so anytime you saw a man that had a scar or a woman that had a scar on their ring, see, you couldn't take that off in a single bar. You better cover it up, put some makeup on it or something. But see, that was that scar what then became the seal or the witness that I'm in covenant with someone now. It was something that when they made that scar, it was something that they put out in the open. They would did not they did not cover it up. They put it and wore it proudly. You know, Jesus has five scars that he wears proudly. He has two in his wrist, two in his feet, and one in his side. And he said, disciples, come here, handle these scars. These are the scars and the marks of a brand new covenant that I've made with my, made with the mankind that I'm going to wear them proudly. It's the only five man-made marks in heaven. But God, Jesus is wearing them proudly. Why didn't God heal them? Why? Because they are a token and a sign and a witness that there is a covenant with Almighty God and man that can never be broken. Glory to God. Hallelujah. And then after they would make the scar, they would give the covenant terms. They would talk about the blessings of the covenant and the cursings of the covenant. And what they would do is they begin talking to, to begin to say, this is what's going to happen to you if you, if you keep this covenant. And they bless and then they, they say, well, now this is what's going to happen if you don't keep this. Remember what Jesus, uh, what, what the Lord did in Deuteronomy chapter 28? He said to Israel, he said, I'm setting before you today life and death. I'm setting before you life and death. If you obey my voice and you'll hearken unto my voice and do my commandments, the, all these blessings are going to come on you. You're going to be blessed in the field, blessed in the city. You're going to be blessed coming in, blessed going out. You're going to be above only and never beneath. He said, you're going to have the fruit of your womb, the fruit of your, your storehouses will be full. I mean, he said, you're going to be the envy of the nations. You're going to get to lend and you'll never have to borrow. You'll be the envy of the nations simply if they did this. But then he said, now, if you don't obey this, here's what's going to happen. You're never going to have anything. You're going to be cursed in the field, cursed in the city. Everywhere you turn around, you're just going to be running into a curse. Everything's going to fall apart. It's going to be a dilapid day. You'll be, the, you'll be the shame of the nations. How many would rather be the envy rather than the shame? I don't know about you. I'd rather be the envy. Hallelujah. But then they would give the covenant terms. And then the, then the next and last one is they would eat a memorial meal in celebration of the covenant. And then the last thing is that they would plant a memorial. And this is one thing I did not quite get to in the blood covenant. So all, everybody listen up. Is plant, when they would plant the memorial, what they did again is they would plant the tree. But now the interpretation that we, we see in our new covenant is God planted a tree on the hill of Calvary. And it's not a living tree, but it's yet a tree. 
that stands, and it is the sign of an everlasting covenant. That when anybody sees that cross, that they know it's not about. Now, ladies and gentlemen, now certain denominations lead Jesus on the cross. He's not on that cross. I said, he's not on that cross. He didn't stay on that cross. He got down off that cross. He also died, was buried. But ladies and gentlemen, he's not on the cross anymore. He got up on the third day. He's now living and seated at the right hand of majesty, making intercession for you and for me. He's not on that cross anymore. That cross is where God and man identified themselves and they planted a memorial. But ladies and gentlemen, God got up on the third day. And he's living now to make intercession for you and for me. Glory to God. Isn't that good news? God planted a memorial. Now, let's go back to Jonathan and David. Now, Jonathan and David, we have to understand this, is that this, these two characters, David, obviously, at this point, that Jonathan begins to, to take a liking to. That's the way they say that down here, isn't it? They take a liking to. Uh, they, they get to liking one another. And Jonathan, he's, he, he just absolutely admires and respects and loves David. Now, David, at this point, he is the giant killer. He's the great warrior. He's the one that has taken the Philistines' head off and given Israel a tremendous victory. He is the man after God's own heart. He's the one that serves. He is now serving Saul in his court. And he serves him as a shepherd boy. Here's a shepherd boy taken out of the field and now put in the king's house. I'm glad that God knows how to take you from where he's called you to where you need to be in a short amount of time. I'm glad for that. But at the same time, Jonathan... Now, listen real carefully. Jonathan is... He is the son of King Saul. And the son of King Saul, ladies and gentlemen, is, not, is a precarious position where the politics began. Because, see, God, when he called David, had removed the kingdom from Saul. Saul did some terrible things, and, he said, and God said, it has repented. I'm sorry I even made Saul king over Israel. So he said, Samuel... He told the prophet Samuel, he said, you go down to Jesse's house and you go anoint one of the boys, one of the sons of Jesse. So sure enough, Jesse comes in uh, and he says, Samuel, um, uh, Samuel says to Jesse, I'm here to anoint one of your sons as king, the the new king. I'm sure Jesse's like, oh, man, take this one. This is my firstborn. And Samuel says, man, he looks pretty good. And God says, "Uh uh-uh, there's a yellow streak in him. Well, there's then how about this next one? Nope, I don't know. And he goes to every one of his sons that are in the house, and he says, don't you have any more sons? God's rejected all of these boys. <laughs> we see why a little bit later. But, but nonetheless, he said, we, I don't, God doesn't want any of these to be king. He said, do you have anybody else? Well, I got a little hippie kid. He's out there singing songs to the sheep all the time. And that's all he does is play his harp, and he's singing to the sheep out, out in the field. Well, go get him. And sure enough, here comes this little ruddy guy, dirty from the field, smells like sheep. (laughs) And God says, that's the one. You know, it's very interesting. You better be very careful how you treat people because the one you don't think, the one you don't think is going to be the next one in line that you're going to be serving. The one you're going to raise your foot against one minute may be the one that you're kissing their foot the next minute. (laughs) Hallelujah. The point is, is that God chose David because of what he saw in him. Thank God. Amen. 
So here's David, here's Jonathan. They commit or they cut a secret covenant because of the fact that the, uh, they cut this secret covenant simply because of the danger that Saul is. Now, Jonathan and David cut this covenant. And the first thing that Jonathan does is he does this. He takes his coat off. Again, this is his identity. And he gives it to David. He gives it, he gives it to David. You look kind of like David. Uh, he gives it, David, he's giving his identity. Now, listen real carefully. When a prince gives his identity to a shepherd boy, that's a big deal because they're cutting covenant, remember. They're cutting covenant. He's giving his identity. He said, I am the son of the king. So everything that I have is my identity. I'm now giving it to you. You know, and see now, David on this, in this area, David is not the king that we know later on. He is not, he's just a shepherd boy. Now, getting to stay at the king's house. And so when the prince comes and he gives him his identity, he's giving him access to all of his influence. In other words, the armies of Israel are supposed to protect Jonathan. Are you with me? He's protect, they protect Jonathan. He's the king's son. And now he's saying, I'm giving you access to my identity. Everything. I, if I had credit cards, you can use my credit card. On my checkbook, you can use my check. I'm giving everything I am to you. Then the next thing he does is he gives him his belt. Well, I'll give you my belt. Oops, sorry. Which is saying, I'm giving you my armor. I'm giving you my protection. In other words, now I'm becoming more loyal to you than I am to anybody else. You remember the phrase, blood is thicker than water? How many have ever used blood is thicker than water? You've heard the, you've heard the phrase used, blood is thicker than water? And usually with the way that we hear it is that blood, meaning our family relationship, is thicker than whatever water is. You know, we don't even know what water is, but blood, we think blood as being kin or family, blood is thicker. In other words, the way they use it is that blood, that family, we are more loyal to family relationships than we are to those that are not family relationships. But that phrase, blood is thicker than water, is a covenant phrase. It actually means the blood of a covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. And what that means is that when I come into a blood covenant with someone, that my loyalty is stronger to those people that I become in blood covenant with than those who are not in blood covenant, or those that I came out of the same womb with. Those who are my family. Those who I call... Now, ladies and gentlemen, here's, here's a great truth for somebody. We need to learn how to be more loyal to the ones we are in covenant with than our, even our own family members. Now, I'm not saying that family's all bad, not at all. But what I am saying is this, is that when you cut a covenant, if you cut a covenant of marriage, you can't let mom rule that marriage. Isn't that great? You gotta be more loyal to your, you gotta be more loyal to your spouse. You gotta, cause you've cut a covenant. You've entered into a ceremony of covenant. That wedding ceremony was a ceremony of covenant. And you come into covenant now. Now we have to remain a little more loyal to that. But what Jonathan did is he takes that belt off and he says, now my protection is your protection. Everything that I sustain my strength with or protect myself with, I'm giving it to you. And we're coming into strong covenant of friendship together. And then, they, of course, they cut this covenant secretly, again, because of Saul's anger. Now, watch this real carefully. 
Let's go on. Let's go on to, to, to read this. Now, if you will go with me to First Samuel chapter nineteen. First Samuel chapter nineteen. And let's begin in reading here in verse number one. It says now Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all of his servants that they should kill David. Now you have to understand something. David has begun becoming prominent. And he has now done excellent in the house of Saul. And now Saul is extremely jealous because he, he goes outside one day and he hears, well, Saul has killed his thousands. David has killed 10,000. And all of a sudden, he starts hearing women and children singing songs where it's putting David in a greater position. And all of a sudden, he can't handle it. His pride cannot handle it. He is threatened, he's intimidated, and now he's furious and he wants to kill David. So he tells Jonathan, everybody say Jonathan. He tells Jonathan on all of his servants that they, are, that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted greatly in David. Why did he delight greatly in David? Because he's in covenant with him, all right, and because he loved him. So Jonathan and David, uh, Jonathan told David, saying, My father seeks to kill you. Therefore, please uh, be on your guard until morning and stay in a secret place and hide. Let me ask you a question. It, as, according to verse 2, who is Jonathan being more loyal to? He's, he's being more loyal to his covenant partner. Is he being loyal to dad? Nope. Matter of fact, he heard in the secret chamber plans of his father to hurt his covenant partner. You know, <laughs> we have a covenant partner that knows the plans of our enemy before he ever does it. And he'll come and warn us before. He says, be on your guard of this thing. Be on your guard. Hide yourself in the blood. Hide yourself in the name. Because the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and they are saved. The enemy, his strategies are always spoiled because we have a covenant partner in the secret chambers of the enemy's camp. Glory to God. No, I know he, I, I, he's not going to hang out there, but he knows everything that's going on because he's already been to our future. Amen. Now, verse number three, and I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And here's the strategy for Jonathan. And he says, where I'm going to stand out in the field with my father where, where you are, and I will speak to, with my father about you. And then what I observe, I will tell you. Verse four, thus Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father. Interesting. He's now interceding on David's behalf to the king. Spoke well and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant and against David, because he has not sinned against you, because his works have been very good towards you. For he took his life in his hands and killed the Philistine. And the Lord brought about a great deliverance for all of Israel. You saw it. And rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood to kill David without a cause? So Saul heeded the voice of Jonathan and Saul swore as the Lord lives, he shall not be killed. And then Jonathan called David. Now, can you get this picture here out in some field? Now, let's just let's just kind of use Holy Ghost imagination here. David's down here hiding in the grass, laying down. Jonathan's over here. Come here, brother George. You're going to be Saul just for a minute. We're not speaking prophetically or anything else. Not confessing that over you. But now, I'll be Jonathan. David, go over there and hide in the grass. <laughs> now, remember, we're in a covenant now. And I tell him, my, fa my father seeks to kill you. Are you getting this? 
seeks to kill you, but now I'm going to go plead your case. And then what I observe, then I'll tell you. So he goes over here and says, Dad, hey, listen, don't, why are you wanting to sin against David? Why are you trying to kill him? Because, remember, he said he has taken his hands in his own life and he brought a great victory for all Israel. You saw it and you rejoiced. So then he says, well, okay, as the Lord lives, he shall not be killed. Hey, David, come here. <laughs> Could you imagine the look on Saul's face that his own son is now more loyal to this guy than his own father? The, notice what that verse is. Stay right here, guys. Notice what that verse, that next verse says in verse number seven. <laughs> There's no cross yet. And he, it's my sermon. Stay out of it. Uh, notice this. He says here, then Jonathan called David, verse 7, and Jonathan told him all these things so that Jonathan brought David to Saul and David was in the presence of Saul as in times past. Now, here's a type and a shadow here, guys. Jesus, there was enmity between the heavenly father and mankind because of sin. There was a broken relationship. And guys, the judgment of God against sin could have hurt. But Jonathan, or Jesus, made a covenant with us. Not that he didn't love his father, but he made a covenant with us. Hallelujah. I don't know if this blesses you, but this really turns my crank. I mean, he made a covenant with man, and he said, Now, Father, I want to let you know something. There are some people, you made these people. You made them by your own hand. You breathed life into them. You're the one that created by your own power. You're the one that has sworn to them. You said that you would never kill them again. And now I'm the interceding. And the Bible says that they were in the presence of the Father like it was. In times past, God has reconciled mankind through Jesus. And now we can get into His presence as if no sin has ever occurred like it was in times past and have communion and fellowship and we can have power of attorney with God. Isn't that wonderful? Thanks, guys. I'm sure we'll be back here in, in a minute, all right? But notice this, it was in times past. So let's, 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 let's just say this, the loyalty lines were drawn. Jonathan discloses his father's intentions to David. Jonathan sp- seeks to protect David. Jonathan speaks well of David to his father. And Jonathan pleaded David's case before his father. And through Jonathan, the relationship between Saul and David is restored as in times past. Now, if you will, go to the next chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 20. And let's notice this here. Everybody all right? All right. I know I'm a little loud this morning, but that's just because I'm so excited. All right. First Samuel chapter 20. Notice verse 41. As soon as the lad had gone, David arose from the place toward the south, fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and they wept together. But David more so, or the one translation says, and King James says, David exceeded. In other words, David just got he got carried away. He got overwhelmed with emotion. Now, guys, this is one of the last times that Jonathan and David will see one another. They love each other. And he bowed three times to the earth as in, I'm so grateful I get to see my covenant partner again. I get to see my friend again. And then he says here, 
He said, Jonathan said, he bows three times and they kiss one another and they wept together, but David more so. Verse 42. Now, I want you to notice this real, real carefully. Then Jonathan said, to David, Jonathan said to David, go in peace, since we both have sworn in the name of the Lord, saying, may the Lord be between you and me. Notice this. And between your descendants and my descendants forever. So he arose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. I want you to underline in your Bible. If you can't, if you can't write in that Bible, throw that one away. Get one you can write in. And underline this right here where it says, May the Lord be between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. The descendants. Underline descendants. That between my descendants and your descendants, there's going to be a covenant between us. Now, in a covenant, guys... The way they did blood covenant is that it didn't just affect the two that were involved in the actual cutting of the covenant. All of the children could jump in on it if they wanted to. All the children could jump into it if they wanted to and receive the benefits. In other words, if he prospers and my family doesn't prosper because we're in covenant, I'm prospering because he prospered. But if I die, all my children can jump in on his house. Why? Because we're in covenant together. Covenant was a very strong thing. Now, again, because we've been so Western civilized conditioned, we don't understand those ramifications. But the blood covenant is still a very solemn thing in, in many parts of the world today. Now, watch this real carefully. David is now on the run at this point in this scripture. David is on the run from Saul. He's trying to get away. Now, he could have taken his life a number of times, but David showed Saul mercy. Now, now these, again, these two men loved each other. And at this point, what they're doing is they're renewing their covenant. And again, this is one of the last times they see it. Now, if you will, go with me to 2 Samuel chapter 4. 2 Samuel chapter 4. Notice here in verse number 1. When Saul's son heard that Abner had died in Hebron. Now, Abner was Saul's champion. That Abner had died in Hebron, he lost heart, and all of Israel was troubled. Skip down to verse number 4. Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son who was lame in his feet. Now, every eye right here, just for a minute. Jonathan and David, Jonathan and David have made a covenant, but no one knows about it. Saul is now chasing David, but Jonathan has been killed, and now Saul's been killed. And so now, all of Saul's house, you're all going to be Saul's house this morning. You're all in the house of Saul this morning, all right? All of Saul's house has heard stories from Saul about how cruel and horrible and what a a, a violent man David is. How many have ever been lied on? This is exactly what Saul, because of his fear and his intimidation, began to spread lies and tell, oh, when David is such a horrible man. Did you see the way he took the head of the, that, that giant? And he is, he is an unruly man. He is a fugitive. He is some, and he just kept on spreading these lies. And so now there is great, there is great trouble in especially Saul's house because when Saul dies, and because Jonathan has been killed, there's no heir to the throne now. The, no, the, the one most likely to get the throne is David. Now, you have to understand, a cruel and a horrible man 
would then take the previous king's household and kill them all and wipe out the existence of that man so that that man could never be remembered. So now this house is in fear. Come on, everybody, be in fear. All right. You see how fearful they are? Now watch this. Now watch this. Verse 4, he says here, Now Jonathan had a son who was lame in his feet. When he was five years old, the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and the nurse took him up and fled. And it happened as she made haste to flee that he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth, I I should have named this, I've been dropped. (laughs) Simply because... So, because there are things that have that have that we trusted in, people that we trusted in, they dropped us. People that have, that we we thought were supposed to take care of us, but because their humanness and because of their inability, they dropped us. And then and, and the Bible says that he was lame in his feet because of this being dropped. And the word and the name Mephibosheth, we don't know what his name was before this, but his his name after that event became Mephibosheth, which means, what a shame. What a shame that a five-year-old boy was dropped and, and he was lame ever since then. Now, why did the nurse run? Huh? Fear. Was there any validity to her fear on David's part? No. The Bible says that the wicked run when no one pursues. Or I like to say my translation is the paranoid run when no one is pursuing. The nurse picks them when he hears about Saul and Jonathan dying. She picks the only heir left to Saul, picks him up and starts running out in fear. Oh my God. David is coming to kill Jonathan's son. He's coming to kill, but she didn't know there is a covenant that had been made between Jonathan and David. That Mephibosheth, there was nothing to fear for him. There was nothing to be afraid of. Guys, we've got a type and shadow here. We got a type and shadow here. There, the devil has been tirated that God is the great judge of the world and you can't get too close to him because he's judgment's coming, judgment's coming. Ju- and you know what? I tell you what, if the, if the devil went on vacation, most of the church bulletin signs could just take up and do the rest for him. Because they, because you'll hear that, you'll see church sign drive by there. Look out world, judgment coming. No judgment already came. It was nailed to a tree and it was died and it rose again as mercy and God has never been angry with the man again. He's simply saying, I've made a way out of your escape. I made a way out of what you judgment. I made a way out. I'm not judging the world anymore. I'm not condemning them. I'm loving them and reconciling them to myself because I provided a way because I loved you so much. I sent my son to die for you so that you can come back and be in my presence as in times past. And this woman's running. And she tripped and falls and the son of Jonathan should have never happened. Fear will bring things on you that should have never happened. I said fear will bring things on you that should have never happened. Fear and faith are the same thing. They both call those things that be not as though they were. 
we have a responsibility to stay in faith. Amen. Now, if you will, go with me to first, uh, Second Samuel chapter 9. Second Samuel chapter 9. A little bit further. David has now taken the throne. David has taken the, the throne of Israel. He has now enlarged the kingdom. And I'm telling you, he's now sitting around with nothing to do. And so he says this in verse number 1. Now David said, Is there anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? (laughs) I hope you get this. Jesus, hallelujah, is looking for somebody. Is there anybody that will just let me show him a little kindness? God's looking at, say, God's looking down and saying, is there anybody that will let me show them a little kindness because of what Jesus did? Is there anybody that will let me heal their body because of what Jesus did? Is there anybody that will let me add a little money to them because of, because of what Jesus did? Is there anybody that I, I could show a little more love to and put a little more peace in life because of what Jesus, Jesus did something and made a covenant and I'd just like to show a little more kindness? Notice this, verse 9. There was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. Now, again, Ziba served Saul. And so they had called him to David. And, da- and, and the king said to him, Are you Z- Ziba or Ziba, whatever you call him? And he said, At your service. Then the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of uh, Saul to whom I may show the kindness of Saul, a kindness of God? Hallelujah. Thank you for the Holy Ghost. And Ziba said to the king. Now, listen real carefully. Ziba, now, every eye right here, if it were just for a minute. If Ziba lied here, it would mean his life because he, he lied to the king. Because he, could, he may have gotten out of it temporarily and tried to hide Mephibosheth. But if they ever find out Mephibosheth exists, Ziba's life is worth squat at that time. Now, notice this. He says, okay, I'm going to answer the truth. He says, there is a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. Now, can you imagine? Can you imagine? David has been going on with his life, not aware that Jonathan, his covenant partner, has a boy living. He didn't even know the boy was living. He said, I'm trying to find somebody, and my covenant partner's got a son. He's got a son that's alive. Now, notice this. He says, he says there's not someone, and he said, there is a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. So the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, indeed, he is in the house of Machir, at the son of Amiel in Lodibar. Now, please underline the word Lodibar. Lodibar is the place of dry, wasted nothingness. Kind of like Iowa or Wyoming, something like that. It is the place of complete nothingness. There is nothing out there. And, and all, and now here is, now listen real carefully. You have to understand this. Mephibosheth is in the house of Saul. He's living in the house of the king. This nurse is afraid. She runs off from the palace and runs off to this desert place of complete nothing. And now they're scratching out some meager existence over in Lodibar. Going from abundance to abstract poverty. 
Staying over there in Lodibar, hanging out in Lodibar, living in Lodibar in fear of judgment coming. Trying to just hide out in Lodibar because we don't want the king to find it. And surely he won't come out all the way out here in this waste place. Now watch this. And then the king sent and brought him out of that. Now, now the one translation, it says he, they fetched him. Now, can you imagine? Now, you know how you know how police officers are, or you know you see them all, the CIA guys or the FBI guys on the on the TV. They don't tell you why they're fetching you. <laughs> they don't tell you why you're being fetched. <laughs> they don't tell you why you've been brought into custody. And now they his men, the David's men, goes out and gets and puts. Mephibosheth in custody. They didn't go. Now, what's he going to do? Are you going to run away? What's he going to do? He's just, he's now, can you imagine what's going through the mind of Mephibosheth? Oh, Lord, the day that I've greatly feared has come upon me. I knew David was too big. He was too far reaching. He's too powerful. I can't escape him forever. The day that I, oh, I'm going to die now. We've got a type and shadow here. The moment you gave your life, to the Lord Jesus, He sent His angels to fetch you out of the kingdom of darkness where you are scratching out some meager existence. You, I mean, when you run from high to high and you run from paycheck to paycheck and you run from this thing to that and crisis to crisis, is that not a meager existence? Is that not the less of an abundant life? And when the moment you said, okay, there's a covenant, the moment you did that, God sent angels to fetch you out of Lodibar and bring you out of the place of a meager existence and set you back in a king's palace. Hallelujah. He's eating crumbs in Lodibar. Verse 7 or verse 6. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. What's he doing? He's begging for mercy. Lord, please, just don't, don't, just don't kill me. Just whatever you do, don't, just don't kill me. And then David said, Mephibosheth? Now, you have to understand something. David is the king, and he's right here in his court. Now, David didn't, he had limited power in the, in the nation because there were governments set up that he couldn't have just total power. But now, in, in, in King David's court, he had total power. Nobody can do anything. Nobody can challenge him in his court. He could just walk up to you and spit on you and walk off. But when he calls Mephibosheth by his name, Glory to God. It was a place of honor. You remember what the Bible said in Isaiah? He said, I've called God, called you by name. That He said, I have engraved your name in the palm of my hand. And when he calls you by your name, it's a place of honor. I, he put, he engraved you. He tattooed you in the palm of his hand so that you're ever before him. You know how you do. You write a number down in your hand so you don't forget it, don't you? Sometimes you write something down in your hand and you don't. Well, when he wrote your name down in his palm, he wrote it down so he would never forget who you are so that he could continually show kindness unto you because of Jonathan or Jesus' sake. Glory to God. 
He said, Mephibosheth, what a shame. Is that you? Notice this. He said, here is your servant. And David said, do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake. And I will restore to you all the land of, your, of, of the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. And then he bowed himself and said, What is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? You know, that's exactly our, our, our religious response to God. What am I that you're such a worm that you would die? He don't pay no attention to that. Yeah, thank God. I mean, we pour him out. Oh, God, I'm just a nothing. Then why did, he, why did he do anything to redeem you? Why did he set his love on you? And why did he put, his na- why did he put your name in the palm of his hand? He wouldn't put a nothing in his hand. And he said, what am I that, I, uh, that you should look upon your servant as a, such as a dead dog as I am? And the king called to Ziba. He just ignored it. Called to Ziba. Now listen real carefully. Ziba was Saul's servant and said, I have given to your master's son all that belonged to Saul and to his house. Watch this real carefully. He's over here in Lodibar. He's in a shack, some shanty, pinned up, trying to escape the judgment that wasn't even coming. He's living in fear, scratching out some poverty-stricken, meager existence, living from hand to mouth, and he's lame, he's afraid, and all of a sudden, in one moment, men show up, translate him out of that place of meager existence and bring him to the king's court and the king says is with one stroke Ziba all of your servanthood that you serve Saul with you're now going to serve this boy because he's your Saul he's your uh, master's grandson and everything that Saul had not Jonathan not Jonathan all that Saul had is now his He went from being in debt and in poverty to being overloaded with the abundance. And now he's got, now Mephibosheth doesn't just have the wealth. He's got servants underneath him. The man's lame. The man, uh, he's got handicap. He's been, he's used to just kind of living, just barely getting along. And now the king says, I'm going to give you all of your grandfather's wealth. And I'm going to let you sit. Now, now, let's read on. Oh, I get so excited about this story. This is... You, therefore, I have given to your master's son all that belonged to Saul and all this house. Verse 10. Then, therefore, you, therefore, and your sons and your servants shall work the land for him. You shall bring in the harvest that your master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table Always. Now, Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. That's a lot of boys working your land. And you know what? Mephibosheth doesn't have to do a thing to earn the wages. Now, when we came to the body of Christ, God put some servants... For you, called ministering 
spirits. And they have prominence in the king's court. They're called the angels. Now, I'm sure the angels kind of look at us and think, man, is this who is the heirs of salvation? They've been walking around in the dark getting slapped in the face with branches. And they walk around. And I mean, the angels, I mean, you know, they, I mean, they are superpower beings. I mean, they are strong. And they look at us in our frailty and they, this is who I'm serving. This is what I'm. That's exactly probably the way that Ziba and his 15 sons. But then David puts the draw. He says, now, wait a minute. In case any of you servants think you're better than this lame boy, I want you to know something. I'm putting a distinction between him and anybody else. He's going to sit at my table and he's going to eat my bread all the time. Now, notice, we'll go on a little bit farther. Ziba said to the king, according to all that the Lord... My, uh, my Lord, the king has commanded your servant, so your servant will do as for Mephibosheth, said the king. He shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. Guys, we are not sinners saved by grace. We are not just people trying to be spiritual, trying to... We have now become... King said, and now he has set us up underneath his table. One thing about a table is good. You can't see legs under tables. You can't see legs under tables. So as far as anyone else is concerned, as far as being seated at the table, he looks just like the rest of the other sons. Now listen real carefully. But the one thing about that's different about the Lord that is different from this story is that when we sit up underneath his table... One of, the, one of the things that the Bible says is the bread that we eat, the children's bread that Jesus talked about, you know, that, that at sitting at his... The Bible says, well, let, let, me, let me hold off right there. And let, let me go back to uh, uh, Psalms chapter 23. Remember what David said? In that, that as I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for thy rod, thy staff, they comfort me. For the Lord prepares a table before me in the presence... Of my enemies. God set a table for Mephibosheth through the hand of David. Right in the presence of everyone that could have looked at him as being shameful. Calling him shameful. Looking at him because he's lame. But God said, I'm going to put a table and you're going to eat at my table. But one of the things on the table that Jesus said, that is, he said, is that the children's bread was healing. If Mephibosheth had sat at King Jesus' table, the moment he started eating that bread, no more lameness. No more lameness. No more crumbs. No more lameness. Because, ladies and gentlemen, I have news for you. Because a covenant was cut between God and Jesus, we get in from being translated out of the kingdom of darkness and out of our abstractness and out of our scratching out what we can do for life. He puts us into the palace. He sets us up underneath the table like one of his own sons. And he says, now I'm going to let you eat my bread. And that bread that we ingest becomes healing for our body. It becomes soundness for our mind. As we eat the... Ezekiel said, I ate the whole roll and it was in my mouth. It was in my mouth. The sweet it became in my belly is bitter. Why? Because that thing turning around in me, it's just got so strong in me. Jeremiah said, it's like fire shut up in my bones. Matter of fact, Jeremiah said, I'm tired of preaching. I don't want to say anything. Everybody leaves when I preach. Everybody gets upset when I preach. And I'm going to just sit down here and be quiet. 
Thirty minutes later, he's back up preaching. They said, I thought you was going to be quiet. He said, I couldn't. It was like fire shut up in my bones. I can't keep it to myself. I can't keep it because it's the bread that's flowing from heaven. And i got to get it out. i got to get it out. Because why? Is that the children's bread that when God speaks a word of children's bread and heavenly manna that comes down, ladies and gentlemen, it feeds our spirit, it feeds our soul, and lifts us up to a place in Him that we no longer have to scratch out But we are now seated in the king's palace, in the king's court, eating the bread of the king. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Let's stand up together. Hallelujah. 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 Thank you for listening to this message. For other ministry products like the one you've just heard, please write to us today at Taylor Ministries, P.O. Box 4483, Marietta, Georgia, 30061. Or you can view other products on the web at www.taylorministries.com Until we hear from you again, please remember, as the Word of God grows in your life, it will prevail over every circumstance. If you give a man a fish, you fed him a meal. Teach a man to fish, and you fed him for a lifetime. That's what Taylor Ministries is doing. If you have enjoyed the ministry of Jeff Taylor, why not prayerfully consider becoming a partner with Taylor Ministries? This international ministry is reaching out to people of all walks of life, touching them through the uncompromised Word of God. Through your prayers and financial contributions, you are causing spiritual fruit to grow and remain in the lives of thousands of people. Help us elevate the body of Christ to their godly potential through the Word of God. We know in our modern culture that it may be easier to use your bank check card. For your convenience, we can now take your debit card or major credit card for one-time or monthly donations. Please help Taylor Ministries to spiritually feed people of all walks of life so they can benefit from the Word of God for a lifetime.